0: Welcome to Simon SimonCast, the official podcast of the Paul Simon Public Policy Institute at Southern Illinois University in Carbondale. I'm John Shaw, the director of the Institute. In Simon SimonCast, we aim to keep the legacy of Paul Simon alive and well through wide-ranging civil conversations. And we're really, really delighted today to be joined by one of the most interesting and dynamic ambassadors working in D.C. today, Ambassador Stavros Lamberdini, who is the European Union's ambassador to the United States. The ambassador has a really interesting background. He's a native of Athens, went to uh, the University of Chicago, graduated from Amherst, has a law degree from Yale, worked in private practice in D.C., returned back to Greece, worked for the prime minister, uh, became a member of the European Parliament, Uh, became Greece's foreign minister, and then was the uh, EU's first envoy on human rights did that for a number of years, and then has been the EU's ambassador in Washington since 2019, and joins us today from the EU's embassy in Washington. So, Ambassador, good morning.
1: Good morning, John. Great to be with you.
0: Well, I have to ask the obvious question. How did a young man from Athens end up in first the University of Chicago and then Amherst and then Yale? Did your folks encourage international travel or how did that all happen?
1: No, no, they they, they did not. Uh, uh, The... um the I, I had I had some relatives in the states. I you know I had come over a few summers when I was a, a young kid. So, the country wasn't unknown to me. But when when I was graduating high school, um, I just decided that I, I that, that I just wanted to go abroad and broaden my horizon. So, the the U.S. became an obvious choice. Now, I wanted to study economics, uh, and at the time I was very involved as a as, as a high school kid in Greek politics. I mean, the dictatorship had fallen back in '74. So virtually my own generation from a young age, 12, 13 years old, started getting involved in politics. Uh, and I was uh, and I was very much supportive of the uh, of the uh, Social Democratic Party of Greece at the time and eventually stayed with it for the rest of my life. Um, in my high school, I said I want to do economics. And uh, and uh, my advisor said, oh, you have to go to the University of Chicago. It's the place. And I did. And then I realized after I went there that it was the place, but not necessarily for a young Greek social democrat. Uh, <laughs> Hilton Friedman, blah, 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 you know, all these things. So um, I decided I wanted to transfer. Now, was that an impulsive decision that I regret? I don't regret it for a minute. I went to Amherst College and it's, it's, uh, you know, I just absolutely positively love the place. It defined me and shaped me. But uh, was, was U of C an absolutely magnificent academic institution? You betcha. And do I have friends from that freshman year at, at U of C? To, to, to this day, yes, I do. And then after I'm done with Amherst, I, I had to decide what to do with my life. I double majored in economics and in political science and psychology. So that kind of tells you I had no idea what I wanted to do. And what do you do when you have no idea what you want to do? You go to law school, if, if you can, and that's what I did. I applied to law school and I got into law school. And that was a very strange decision for a, for a foreigner because you know I, I'm a foreigner, I was a Greek citizen. So by going to an, to an American law school to get my JD, I was almost making a decision I would not be going back to Greece to practice because it's not really transferable. But I also had no guarantee I could practice in this country. I was not a citizen, uh, but I did it anyway because I wanted to do it. And, and, and then life, uh, you know, found its way. I went to Wilma Cutler and Pickering here in Washington after law school, so a big law firm with Lloyd Cutler, a venerable lawyer, He's passed since. But, you know, he became sort of my mentor, I, uh, you know, and, and I stayed. And I stayed until the Greek army found me. So guys, cautionary tale, every Greek male has to serve in the army. Uh, and, uh, and I had to, and I had deferred that for many, many years, um, uh, but eventually I had to do it. And I, you know, I told them, look at, I mean, I have a career, I have a life, you know, do I really have to come at the age of 30 back and serve with a bunch of 18 year olds? And they said, you absolutely must. And I did. And then I got back into Greek politics and the rest is history, I suppose.
0: Well, I was interested when you were uh, practicing law in D.C., you were, uh, you know, in this, uh, you know, as you said, a very prominent firm, you know, doing international law. I think trade was one of your specialties. But you were also, I think, the president of a, a group that dealt with uh uh, the bar the DC Bar Association's human rights wins. Yes, pretty, And yeah. when we think of international law, at least when I do, I think of I think of trade and human rights as being kind of distinct disciplines, with yeah. probably a lot of people who are doing deep international trade are not also involved in human rights. How did these kind of <laughs> dual interests develop?
1: Well, you know, there's no question that that my political background and coming from a Greece that went through a dictatorship when I was a very young kid, but very, very guttural feelings about it um that uh, that i developed an interest in public policy and in democracy um many young Greeks did at the time but 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 for me it was just a, a passion it was a, a just deep commitment so whereas i did go and i did become a trade lawyer uh, i cannot tell you that this, this that was the passion of my life uh and uh, in the end of the day of course life took me to a place that is much closer to what is the passion of my life Uh, So I, I, you know, I I didn't want to, I mean, I I specialize in trade law and international arbitration as well, but I also wanted to make sure that I kept in touch with the very hardcore law that is human rights law. So many people think that human rights is just pie in the sky kind of thing or just talking nicely about this and the other. In fact, it is international law, international conventions. Um, It is enshrined in virtually every constitution in the world, even if it, uh, you know, governments don't follow it and dealing with many. Um, human rights issues, such as the right to protest or the right to have a free uh, press or uh, criminalizing violence against women. All these things end up being legal issues, um, uh, in addition to uh, issues of changing the hearts and minds of people in any society. So I didn't feel at all uh, out of whack with my legal background doing this, and I'm glad I did.
0: Well, let's talk about, I mean, we could spend a whole uh, hour plus talking about your career because you've done so many interesting things. One thing I'm really intrigued with is your time in the European Parliament, because um, you rose to become vice president of the parliament. And I know in Americans, we think our our house is unwieldy with 435 members. The last I read, they had like 705 members of the European Parliament. I mean, how do you gain traction in a body like that? How do you...
1: Right, and that's small. There were more my day when the UK was in. So, uh, so that's, we, we've actually reduced the numbers now. <laughs> uh, you know, you gain more traction in the European Parliament by far than you again at, at, at the US Congress, in my view. And I'll explain to you why. Um, the system of the European Parliament is set up in the way that no party, not even the largest party in the European Union, uh, in our case, for a number of years now, the, the Conservative Party, the Christian Democrats, the largest party, No one can have the majority of the seats in the parliament. The second largest party are the social democrats. They have a smaller minority. You have the liberals, uh, which in in Europe, they're not liberals in the US sense. They're more, you know, um, center right. You have the greens, et cetera, et cetera. You have many parties and you have no majorities. That means by definition that to achieve anything, anything, you simply have to, in every single piece of legislation, build alliances with others. and. Those alliances are not strictly restricted to just one party. You have many to pick from. In a case of an environmental piece of legislation, if you're a social democrat, you may form an alliance with the Greens, with you know some liberals who supported maybe the left party, or what have you. In the case of uh, you know uh, security, you may form an alliance with the conservatives uh, or with something else. So, but to get this done, you simply have to spend countless hours meeting with your colleagues from different countries and different political parties to discuss things that are high on their agenda, even though in your context they may be close to irrelevant, so that when your issue comes up, you know you have created enough of, uh, enough alliances for your issue to be picked up by them. And that interaction is remarkably important in the democracy we have in Europe. Get me, please don't get me wrong. The ideological and political fights of the European Parliament are fierce. We come with from very, very different, you know, ideological backgrounds and directions, in addition to different countries. But in the parliament, we're not organized on the context of a country, we're organized in the context of a political group. So the conservatives from the Netherlands, the conservatives from Greece are going to be in the same party, even though they're from different countries. So they're deep ideological battles. But There is also an understanding that if you manage to see yourself, because in any compromise you don't win everything, right? So, but if you manage to see yourself and your views in part of that compromise, then it becomes yours as well, even if you lose other things that you know you you know you really wanted to have in. And learning how to live with less than the full pie, learning that politics is not necessarily and always a zero-sum game. Is, uh, is, to me, a prerequisite for a democracy working. Because frankly, a democracy is not a zero-sum game, it's not a winner-takes-all, it never has been. The way that our liberal democracies have worked uh, and have succeeded is that we knew, we always knew that, you know, democracy does not end at the ballot box, it begins there. Um, you know, the person who wins becomes the president, the prime, or the prime minister of all of us, even those who voted against. They have to try to bring coalitions up. And if you lose that, then you, are in, uh, you know, then you are in such polarization that democracy simply cannot function. First of all, because you cannot afford to lose. I mean, if you think that if I lose, the other guy will come in and I get nothing, you can't afford to lose. You don't want to lose. Suddenly, you know, you know an election becomes a much nastier exercise. And, uh, and secondly, because we understand in democracy is that, you know, in the end of the day, we are all minorities. We may be a majority on a particular topic in any particular moment, but at this exact same moment, we're probably a minority in some other topic. And if we try to take advantage of a majority position in one case to kill the other, then you can bet you we've opened the door to hell for us ourselves in different contexts. And that is the difficulty of democracy. In some ways, it is the system where you ask the people to choose by majority who will rule, but you expect that ruler to actually take care of those who lost. That's complex stuff. That's why it's the hardest political system in the world. That's why when we don't do it right, and maybe one might argue we have not been doing it that well in the past few years, um, it, uh, you know you can get to a paralysis uh, that might make authoritarians around the world suddenly start looking good. Uh, in their own eyes, certainly, and in their propaganda around the world. Uh, and this is why, in my view, John, uh, the number one priority we, we ought to be having as Americans and Europeans is to the rediscovering and recelebrate ourselves what democracy means. So, because only then will we be able to, again, very effectively, because it is the most amazing and the most uh, humane and the most efficient system in the world, only then we'll we be able to effectively also discuss it with others, so the European Parliament, long answer to a short question, um, actually gets to laws done, and it does it not by getting the lowest common denominator, but by serious negotiations that very often manage to raise the bar in the end of the day than lowering it, uh, and you've seen that in recent uh, in the rec- in recent years in many many cases.
0: Well, let's talk about the EU. Um, And it's a complex institution. About a 70-year history began as a coal and steel community in 1950, then becomes the European Economic Community, the European Community, now the European Union. Membership has grown, uh, now 27 members. If you're sitting on an airplane next to someone and they say, you know, Mr. how tell me about the EU a little bit. What is the thumbnail sketch you give to sort of put a framework around it for Americans yeah. who might not quite, they know some of the terms, but they don't know how it all kind of coheres.
1: Yeah, I think I think that's a brilliant question and and, and such a difficult one. You know how many EU ambassadors to the U.S. have come and gone before me uh, who have had to explain all this to their American counterparts? And then the next ambassador came in and they realized that no one knew anything again because the administration had changed, new people were in. You know, America is America, the exceptional country, all that stuff. So, you know, we don't really need to focus to others that much. But then, boy, oh, wait a second. We need to focus on the EU. So what are you guys? OK, this is where we are. It's we are so complex, honestly. I mean, you have to I mean, you, you I mean, even even myself being, you know, so many years, you know, in the, in the heart of Europe, uh, sometimes, uh, you know, I have to look back and see what the exact procedure might be to get something done, because it may be the competence of member states, but not only, but also the commission in this thing, the other. But fundamentally, what I tell Americans is that we are really now, no, no, not much different than the U.S. system as it is set up, although we are not a federal state. But what we are is we are 27 countries who have decided to get together and to pool their sovereignty on a number of topics that they have agreed to do so because they feel that in those topics pooling our different sovereignties Um, you know, makes actually our collective capacity to be effective uh, much higher. In other topics, we have decided to keep sovereignty to ourselves and not to share it with Europe. Defense is an example. Uh, And in other cases, we decided to share sovereignty with, with Europe, right? So does that ring the federalism bell a little bit in people's heads? Because this is precisely what U.S. states have done, uniting in the United States of America. I mean states keep to themselves uh, you know a bunch of sovereignties have given this to the to the, uh, to the uh, you know uh, central government the US administration in Washington others defense is a national sovereignty in your case but when it comes to election laws you know every state decides what you know how it wants to run it and what, what it wants to do when it comes to education you know states have uh, you know the primary uh, role so um, it's, it's no different. Then you look at the, the, the issue of the government, the federal government. Well, we have a federal government in, Euro, in Europe as well. It's called the European Commission. It is comprised of 27 commissioners, which are your secretary of this and secretary of that, uh, that are appointed uh, by the 27 member states, by the, by the elected prime ministers of each one of the 27 member states. Each appoints one person how is that any different from an elected president of the United States appointing his cabinet or her cabinet uh, and appointing unelected people to be secretary of the treasury or secretary of state or whatever? It's not different. It's the exact same thing. However, the guy next to me in the airplane will nevertheless think that everyone who works for the U.S. administration is a civil servant, whereas everyone who works for me is a bureaucrat. Right? (laughs) So, so, That's a discussion that is not, oh, the bureaucrats in Brussels, you know, all all the bureaucracy. No, it's not. It's exactly the same as here. We have a government, we have, you know, departments of this, that, the other, and we have people who work on those departments, right? Um, And then, of course, you have the the, the institution of the European Parliament, we discussed about before, which now has powers to co-legislate with the other final institution, the European Council, which is the, the the prime ministers themselves, the elected prime minister, the representatives of the member states themselves, Parliament and prime ministers, member states legislate on the basis of legislative proposals that come from the European Commission, the government of the EU. So, um, real powers in the European Parliament, real powers in the hands of member states. We are, as I said, not a federation, not a federated state yet, like the US is. So, member states have a, ha- have a big say, but we are increasingly. After every crisis, you, you mentioned we came out of crisis. After every crisis, we come out more united um, and more uh, advanced in our integration, which I think is quite remarkable. And if the person next to me is an American journalist uh, and, not, uh, and not just any American who has predicted probably about 10 times the past 10 years that Europe will collapse and has been left with egg in their face, they probably would ask me, how, how is it possible you guys are still alive? Why are you not splitting back to your own national sovereignties? What is this thing? And the answer is, look, as you said, we came out of the Second World War where Europeans killed each other. That was the bloodiest war in recent world history. And European was killing European. Neighbor was killing neighbor. And we committed the biggest atrocity, human rights atrocity in the world, the Holocaust. Now, coming out of that, we made a very conscious decision. We would never again be in war with each other. We would never again commit human rights violations. We would, in fact, build ourselves as the biggest, most prosperous, most peaceful, most human rights respecting region in the world. We came out of a labor of hate. And we created something out of a labor of love. And we have succeeded. And it hasn't been easy. It's been a long road of many decades. And we have been increasing our coordination, cooperation, integration over those decades. But today, financial crises in 2009, 10, 11, it could have split us apart. Everyone was predicting that finally the euro as a currency would collapse. It didn't, the euro is as strong as ever. Migration crises, people thought oh, there it is once again, the Europeans are fighting with each other, culture wars are coming up. Well, it did hurt us a little bit. I mean, the the, the UK people are showing for reasons that had nothing to do with Europe itself, but a lot to do with populism and migration, language and and splitting rhetoric back in that country, uh, decided to leave. Uh, But in Europe, we've come out more united with more united policies on migration and a greater sense of security, but also of Respect to our obligation to take care of people who really need protection. And then we did have Brexit. And some people said, okay, this is the beginning of the end now, right? It has to be. Others have to leave. And not only did they not, but more people in every single European member state today say they support the EU and they believe it's fundamental for their prosperity and for uh, their happiness than they did before Brexit. And finally, of course, we had COVID. And COVID is very important because, John, for the first time in COVID, we decided to do something as Europeans that we never, ever did before. We decided to borrow together in the open markets using the collective power of the European Union economy as opposed to every different country's economy. And, of course, that allows you like you do in the States. You have your, your treasury bills. No one buys, uh, you, know, uh, you know, according to what the economic strength of Iowa or Minnesota or California is they buy America. So in in our case, we did the same. It was very difficult politically to do, and we did it. And now we have a fund in place. um, In total, we're going to have about two trillion, two and a half trillion dollars committed to our budget and our growth out of COVID uh, in the next few uh, years. Uh, that a big part, of a chunk of which is, is, is borrowed by the EU itself. So every crisis brings us out stronger. And that is, may not make a lot of scientific sense to some people who look at the details of what the euro is or what you know, uh, migration policy is, uh, but it makes a lot of political sense if you think about how we were
0: born. Well, let's talk about one one issue that's been in the news a fair amount recently, which is Poland. Um, uh, apparently, the Polish Supreme Court or a high court ruled that uh, Polish law superseded E.U. law, which is a fundamental departure from you know the, the 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 operating premise of the E.U. I know there's been a battle in which funds have been withheld. And I've read some reports, I think there was an article in The Washington Post, which had one analyst saying this is this is about as fundamental of an issue as the E.U. will ever face. Tell us a little bit about how you see it and how that's played out in recent weeks.
1: Yeah. So it's no different, again, than the United States. I mean. We are, as you are, many different people from different backgrounds, from different cultural backgrounds, um, who are united by the rule of law in the European Union. Um, The rule of law in the European Union is not just simply the laws of the market, uh, which is a big chunk of that law. The single market in the EU was created because we managed to create a single set of rules, supremely sophisticated, and virtually everything has to do with the economy and to put aside our 27 different national laws. But that single market is what has created the remarkable economic vibrancy of Europe today. Uh, So there is an economic issue at stake uh, if people start ignoring that. Uh, But there's also law that goes way beyond that. We legislate in Europe on everything from the environment to fundamental rights uh, to other things, uh, either because the European Commission has been given that competence already by member states or because in any particular case, member states decide to give it additional competence to legislate on this issue or that issue. So it's not possible in the EU to have a member state that says that my laws and my constitution go beyond uh, the laws of the European Union, the European Court of Justice. In fact, in virtually every one of our constitutions, there is a provision and there's a very clear understanding when you enter the EU an obligation that European law has um, uh, uh, primacy. Now, uh, because of this uh, issue, we're having, uh, of course, very serious discussions with Poland. Um, and uh, these discussions continue. Uh, we have began, uh, you know, the process of them. Uh, they uh, uh, There are a number of things that you can do in this process. There are, of course, infringement proceedings, taking this case to the internet, to, to, to the European Court of Justice, There is a a rule of law mechanism that all member states unanimously have adopted uh, that allows in extreme circumstances, in fact, for some funds not to be dispersed, if there is a concern that there has been a violation of the rule of law. Um, And of course, there is an an extreme measure, what we call Article 7 of the Treaty of the European Union, which allows in circumstances where there is a certifiable violation of, uh, of fundamental principles in the European treaties, Uh, for a country to um, uh, go as far as to lose its voting rights in the European uh, Council. Now, in Europe, we've faced crises like this in the past. They've never been pleasant. uh, And we have managed in our own way to overcome them. Uh, And our own way is one where we actually discuss, coax, you know, sometimes, you know, uh, often, in fact, use legal proceedings, so um, I do not uh, believe that uh, this is something that will not find a way to be resolved as well, because the Polish people, in their um, overwhelming majority, want to be members of the European Union. They state this in every occasion they have the chance to do, because they understand how the European Union has been instrumental in supporting democracy in Poland and in, uh, and in helping the Polish economy flourish. So. Um, we're in a row there John we're not at the end of it uh, and, um, and uh, I believe uh, we're going to reach the end of it uh, successfully.
0: Well let's talk a little bit about brexit because I mean it's obviously it was such a public uh, battle over several years got a lot of headlines in the United States you know and of course across Europe and I'm wondering um, you know and I'm sure it's impossible to generalize but with for your the EU as it regards the UK, is it a little bit like a contentious divorce in which you wish your former spouse well, but just not too soon and not to get happy too quickly? I mean, is there a sense that that um, you know that you want Britain to kind of stew in its own uh, juices, as it were? see no. ju-
1: I mean, absolutely not. It, it is in our interest for, for the UK to come back to some normalcy. Brexit created a, a huge uh, schism in British society. Um, uh, Britain is, uh, is, uh, uh, you know, uh, has a lot of populism still flying around in its politics. Uh, They seem not to be able to get rid of Brexit in their domestic debate. People in Europe, the European Union, don't discuss Brexit, I assure you, at all, until and unless the UK manages in its own unique way to put it back in the radar screen again, because it will claim that it did not understand what it signed, what, what, what the Boris Johnson administration signed. Forget the Theresa May administration that Boris Johnson came in and said, well, I don't like what she signed. And then he signed something else. And now, he, you know, apparently didn't understand what he signed. And he wanted to change. So if anything, we're at the point uh, in a divorce that we, that we are like, take the kids and leave already. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like, OK, so you want to be out. Great. Now, let's just get the relationship straight and right. So you're not a member of the European Union anymore, which means that unfortunately that we didn't decide this. We wanted you to stay in. But we started to go. Now, that means, by definition, you knew this. It cannot be otherwise. It applies in the U.S. as well. Your goods and your services and primarily your goods cannot come in the EU without being checked. We have an agreement, you know, for virtually zero tariffs in everything. But at the same time, we have different uh, provisions. That single market I mentioned before that we put together, you know, when we got rid of the borders within the EU, we decided, for example, that there had to be some standards in the uh, in the quality uh, and the safety of the food that we consume so that, you know, uh, if I'm in France, I can uh, import uh, lamb from Greece and not have to check whether or not it fits the, my own requirements. So we have common requirements and we all try to adjust our economies and the way we produce, uh, you know, food, for example, to make sure that it separates the standards. So if you're in the UK and there are people in the UK who said, well, you know, there's no reason to leave the EU and then just keep all the EU standards in. We want to leave the EU and make our own standards. Well, if you're going to make different standards, when it comes to food safety, that the ones that you abided by all these decades as a member of the EU, well, though, your products cannot be coming in, right? They have to be checked at the border. So you cannot not have a border. And they knew this. We knew this. Um, uh, and uh, and now they, you know, now they they claim they're surprised and and they want to change all this. So honestly. I hope this is over soon because the UK is always going to be our neighbor, um, was in the EU for decades. Uh, the, you know, the people of Europe, uh, the people of the UK are, are Europeans, uh, and they feel for each other just the, the same exact amount of uh, camaraderie as they feel for anyone else uh, in the in the EU. The governments may at times be playing games on the people's backs, uh, but eventually we have to come to some normalcy because you know what, Here are some big challenges out there. The world is changing when it comes to human rights and values and Americans, Europeans, uh, the Brits, Canadians, Australians, others, you know, we have to get together and and make sure that we find a way to effectively address this. New technologies are coming online that are not just going to be instrumental for the economies of our future, but also for the values that we are able to uh, have in our democracies in the future. And we have to be able to work together with the UK, the US, and others to make sure we set the right laws and standards for all these technologies. Defence challenges that we are facing and the counterterrorism and all that the UK is indispensable in this uh, in this uh, fight. So um, I hope that I hope that we can get to a point that uh, this divorce, um, you know, okay, is is behind everyone, uh, and uh, and uh, you know. We can raise the kids together.
0: <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about the U.S. and the EU. And I saw a talk, <laughs> excuse me, you gave at Amherst. And it, I think it was a little nostalgic. You had a couple of your, a lot of your classmates in the audience and a yeah. former professor. And you were, uh, you were talking about your time at Amherst. And then but, you know, focused on the U.S.-EU relationship. And you divided it into kind of three categories. The first was economic uh, the second was security and the third was value. So I wonder if you could kind of briefly kind of sketch out, um, you know, maybe starting out with the economics. I mean, the two, two, two of the, the two largest economies in the world, almost 800 million consumers, affluent consumers, by and large, talk about the economic relationship and then security yeah. and then values.
1: Yeah, John, I'm happy to do so. So look, just, first, let's just look at the simple fact. So um we are each other's biggest trade and investment partners by far, so which means that the U.S. exports to Europe, to the European Union, and invests in Europe more than it does anywhere else in the world, and which means that European companies export to the U.S. and invest in the U.S. more than they do anywhere else in the world. The immediate effect of this is that we create about 15 million jobs across the Atlantic, about 8 million jobs here in the U.S., about 7 million jobs in Europe, direct and indirect jobs because of that trade and investment. And we bring food to the table of uh, millions over millions of our families. And we do so, so in other words, we are the biggest economic booster of each other's middle classes and families than anything else and anyone else outside of what we do ourselves in our own economies. Well, 7 million jobs, you say, boy, you know, there we're more than 300 million people here in the U.S. Why is that a big number? Well, I don't know. I mean, I asked the question when I first came to the States, and I and I, and I, I tried to put this in perspective. So I asked, I asked some people, I said, you know, give me a huge car company in the U.S., GM, let's say. How many jobs does GM have in the United States, creating in the United States? And I asked the, uh, the, the GMVP that question when I first arrived, and they said about 150,000 jobs. One of the biggest companies in the United States, GM, creates 150,000 jobs. European investment in this country creates 7 million jobs. That puts it in some perspective. It is huge. Now, when we fight on trade, we make make headlines. When we work together, we make history when it comes to economy and many more things. And so my focus the past two and a half years since I arrived was to get push off the table the trade disputes that have been created in the past few years. And I'm very happy that we have done this. So just two days ago, we announced the resolution of a big trade dispute on steel and aluminum. A few months back, we grounded the trade dispute on Airbus and Boeing. Uh, and, um, and we are working now on a very positive trade agenda around the world, including looking guys at big issues like supply chains for semiconductors and other things like pharmaceuticals. Because, in fact, we are deeply reliant. We face a similar vulnerabilities, Europeans and Americans, when it comes to supply chain reliance for things that we absolutely need for our economies. And if the two biggest economies in the world, free open economies in the world, cannot find a way to sort of the, the economies of scale and the complementarities to, to create those things, to basically look at our market as a unified market and look at our supply chains as unified supply chains, uh, then I don't know who can. So that's a big thing. Second point on the economy is that every time that we put something in a container, like a good in a container to export to someone else around the world, you can see that good. What you cannot see is that we put in that same container at the same time our values. So we don't produce by having slave labor uh, or forced labor uh, or uh, underpaying our people. We don't produce by polluting the environment to produce something quicker, faster. We have laws and regulations that prohibit that. We have very highly educated labor forces, in many instances, certainly in Europe, because we provide free education to them. So keep in mind, however, that at the same time and increasingly other countries around the world with different values than ours, including China, are also exporting their own values in their own containers. And we're not just in an economic battle around the world today, we're in a values battle which is the third point that I mentioned in that, in that discussion. So it's going to be very important as we engage on trade discussions around the world to revitalize the WTO. We need a referee to, uh, to update its rules in some instances to make sure that it, it captures some of the unfair trade practices of others. But we also have to be much more resilient um, in, in asking countries that don't apply don't play the game fairly, that massively subsidize their companies, um, creating national champions, so that bid around the world for different projects with massively subsidized banks, providing a major advantage to the companies over American and European companies. We have to, and we are discussing very closely today, Americans and Europeans, we have to protect our workers and our companies from that fair competition. Okay, so that's in a nutshell, the economic part.
0: The and in terms of, um um of of how your embassy works in washington let's let's go there because it's it, to me it's very intriguing because you know you are you know a, a powerful international organization <clears throat> comprised of 27 nation states who also have their embassies in D.C. And so on the one hand, um, I'm, I'm sure you you work hard on advancing a, a EU agenda, but each of the 27 embassies are trying their hardest to forge a very you know, close and dynamic relationship. So I'm wondering when you go to key meetings, are, are you like in the lobby and you see 26 other ambassadors there and you're kind of jostling to see who gets in first? I mean, how do you how do you? Both allow for kind of a distinct bilateral relationships, which are critical to the 27, and also have a coherent EU agenda in DC.
1: So, in many ways, John, we're no different than we are back in uh, back in Europe and back in Brussels. So, um, our member states here, uh, of course, the DC is a very bilateral town. Every country and territory in the world has an embassy here, and everyone, of course, has major interests here, national interests that they try to promote bilaterally. Makes sense. But just as in Europe, so in the US, we also understand that uh, that our ability on certain issues, um, obviously issues where the European Union itself has the competence because member states gave it, such as trade, uh, but also broader issues such as the environment where we have joint laws in the EU, but also member states do the thing. Um, We know that we are much better position to be influential even at the bilateral level if we appear united at the European level. And so um, once a month we have uh, we have a regular meeting between uh, EU ambassadors uh, which I coordinate uh, and uh, we discuss uh, the, the topics on the agenda for the next month. Um, uh, we know we update each other on our visits you know different visits or different developments. Uh, that that we feel also affect the uh, you know other member states and the European Union's presence in the U.S. Uh, but we do a number of extraordinary meetings as well on different topics. We we sent a letter just a few days ago. Uh, the majority of EU ambassadors, but also the ambassador of Canada, of uh, of Japan, of some other countries to the, to the leaders of the U.S. Congress on what we believe is. Um, and avoidable uh, and very important to avoid a new trade friction that may come up when it comes to e-vehicles, where the US is planning for incentives uh, to consumers to buy e-vehicles, but only if the e-vehicle is produced in the United States, which would be a violation of international law, but also really bad for the US economy. There are only two e-vehicles built here at this stage. There are 50 e-vehicles from around the world. And if you're going to be moving to green, you need all of them in the market, right? So that's another example. Um, But um, we also do things in addition to that. So um, uh, to give you an example, um, uh, two or three weeks ago, um, I organized a joint outreach reading of all EU member state ambassadors to Delaware. Keep in mind, any ambassador in this country uh, does outreach. In other words, you know, uh, the first thing someone tells them eventually, especially after the election in 2016, is that is that, uh, you know, Washington, D.C. is a bubble. You know, you probably will not learn what you need about this country if you just stay in there. You have to go out and to different states. Um, so we do this. I do my own outreach. Uh, you know, other EU ambassadors do it themselves. But we've also decided that we're going to be picking some states And going together. And when we go together, we meet, of course, with the governor all together and, uh, you know, in in any particular state. But then we break up in groups of three or four ambassadors and we blanket the state for a day. And we do about seven or eight different events on all the important things to the state and to the EU, from trade to environment and new technologies to values and artificial intelligence to, um, uh, you know, to uh, defense and security and foreign policy. And you can imagine that the multiplication effect of 27, 28 ambassadors with me uh, in a state for a whole day doing this with all the leaders of that state in every field, business, uh, you know, security, defense, uh, you know, climate, the multiplication effect of that is huge. So, and it doesn't take away at all. In fact, it adds to a value. So my job is to some extent to find all those elements where, EU and EU member states together can multiply uh, their uh, their, their influence and visibility uh, without doing harm to to any member state. Now, my embassy itself, I'll tell you two things about. The one thing is there's not a single issue in the world that is not an issue for the EU-US bilateral relationship. So you may have some countries, uh, including European countries that don't have every issue in the world on their agenda. You know, maybe their main issue is the security defense or the main issue is trade or investment, right? But in my case, every topic for what's happening in Sudan to, uh, you know, how do you, um, you know, uh, get the electrolytes to turn hydrogen into green hydrogen and create the storage capacities of the future for clean technologies to um, uh, you know the Indo-Pacific, uh, to um, you know setting standards for AI, every one of those are my topics. Which means that you need an embassy that is staffed with some of the best people uh, to be able to handle all this. And the blessing of being the EU embassy is that we can pick from the best people in 27 different countries in the European Union, not just one. And we do, because virtually everyone, either in the European system, European Commission, External Action Service, or European member states, who wants to serve the European Union in a delegation abroad, wants to come to the US at some point. So I am blessed with the fact that our people here, and not just the Europeans we have, but the Americans we have, because the majority of the staff that we have in the EU delegation are actually Americans working on many issues. I am blessed that we have the attraction capacity as EU embassy to get the best of the best. Um, am I happy that I have to become an expert in virtually everything? And if I'm not, be really good at pretending that I am. <laughs> yeah. Yes, I mean, yes, it's It's an unbelievable school. I mean, you cannot, you, you, you cannot do this job unless you are really prepared and able to dive deep into virtually every different topic and then to be able to come out real fast, catch some air, and bring out of this whole ocean the two or three things that are the important things of the relationship, not the other hundred things that are not. So that is something that uh, you know that challenges you every day, um, but it's brilliant. There's never a boring moment, and I'm grateful for it.
0: Well, I'm also struck by how you use symbolism, and I saw a little clip where you were—I um, think you had shortly arrived, and and you arrived to you have an amazing residence, but the walls were empty, and you <laughs> decided to to put art, and you decided to do American art, and I think the first maybe room was was Texas, maybe it was the largest. Uh, importer exporter to the EU Tell us about that I mean it's obviously a way of avoiding <laughs> fighting between 27 European countries as to who art who's <laughs> art to hang but also it plays to the you know the, the relationship that you're trying to develop yeah. with the Americans.
1: No you're absolutely right John so so when I came in the walls were actually empty uh, and uh, and I had to make a decision what art to put on and I decided uh, maybe maybe it helped me that I, I did not come from a diplomatic background. I came from a political background, so I could take some extra risk without asking Brussels. I'm guessing, had I asked Brussels, I would have probably gotten the answer. But you know, this is not—we don't do these things, right? So, uh, so I decided that I wanted my house not 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 to become a mirror reflecting myself, um, but to become a window connecting me to the country to which I came. I came to serve, and I decided also. Remember, the time was like the hard years of the Trump administration, where there was a lot of negative rhetoric against the European Union. I decided that the best way to be able to approach both policymakers but also the simple people on the street in this country was not by doing what an ambassador usually does, which is to tell them why they should like me. I bring jobs, I do this, I'm great. But to tell them why Europeans love America. Because we do. What connects us fundamentally is not the money or the defense. I mean, yes, all these things, but it's just a deep, ingrained history of personal relations. Sixty million Americans today are of European descent. And so many other things in America have influenced and are loved by Europeans, and they influence our culture, what we sing, what we do. So, the art was one thing. Then I also decided to celebrate Kentucky at my residence. Now, Was it entirely unrelated to the fact that after the U.S. imposed the illegal steel aluminum tariffs, we had to reply and we imposed very high tariffs on bourbon, which is produced in Kentucky, and the bourbon producers were unhappy. And I wanted to send them a message that, you know what, the moment that the U.S. lifts its tariffs, the tariffs on bourbon are gone. We're not happy to have them there, but we have to do it. So, no, it wasn't entirely unrelated to that, of course. but we turned that event into a celebration of bourbon because we love bourbon. We don't like to tax it. If we are forced to, we're unhappy to do it. We do it. We're happy to do it. So at 10, the 10 biggest bourbon producers in the, in the residence, we had a bourbon tasting. We had a bluegrass band because we love bluegrass. I mean, there are just so many things. If you think of your job in a country, not as an ambassador, Um, not in terms of trying to boast about yourself all the time, but instead trying to explain to the people that you've come to connect with all the reasons why your people feel connected already. That's an entirely different way to do diplomacy, and I wanted to try it, and it's worked.
0: Well, let's talk a little bit about... um about diplomacy in the era of covid and uh, for all of us who you know think that our lives have been made complicated by covid i'm thinking of your situation in which you know you're, you're you're you arrive in 2019 you know you you know covid descends in say march of 2020 you know so working virtually you have to monitor an amazingly contentious presidential election you have to monitor a transition that is both chaotic and violent you have to maintain relationships with a the current Trump administration, you have to develop relationships with the incoming Biden administration, and you have to do all this through Zoom. I mean, how did you pull it off?
1: <laughs> well, uh, so we planned ahead a lot. I mean, uh, indeed, uh, in, in March, um, early April, we, uh, we uh, shut down the, uh, the embassy. Uh, we only had a skeleton staff in, and we kept that for many, many months. Uh, eventually, we started coming back, but only a 25% force. So the staff in the embassy had to do a remarkable work do, uh, following every, all those things that you're saying and doing so remotely in diplomacy, which is fundamentally a contact sport, right? We achieved it very effectively because we planned ahead. We looked at what was ahead. So we didn't just deal with playing defense, but we also thought there is going to be election in this country and, and one, or two part, one of the two parties is going to win, one of the two candidates. We have to be able to think of what kind of an agenda we as Europeans can put on the table in order to be able to engage with either of them. And that we could do through our own internal brainstorming, not requiring the external context all the time. But of course, we informed that brainstorming through a lot of those Zoom things that, you, that you're saying separately. And we came up with a document for Brussels and eventually uh, eventually, our institutions came out with a blueprint once President Biden was, was elected, a blueprint on how we work, how we suggest that we work with the Biden administration, which I think even today is a 10 pager. Um, it's called a joint communication um, for the bilateral relationship. Um, and um, I, 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 would, I, I would recommend that people read it. I mean, now we have much more. We've we've had a European summit that was based on many elements of that joint communication. We have summit conclusions that are sort of the compass for the immediate future and what we do, Americans and Europeans, together. Um, summit is when the leaders meet, and they met in June in Brussels, um, President Biden with President von der Leyen and President Michel. Um, But that work was inspiring for all of us, John, because it reminded us of another important job of an ambassador, which is to be able to, and of an embassy, uh, which is to be able to feed into the discussion back in their capitals with foresight and with advice on what may be coming, not just what needs to be addressed now, what fire needs to be put out. And because we did all this work, Today, we had the Trade and Technology Council in Pittsburgh that took place last month. Um, The first EU-US huge meeting on everything that sits on the intersection of trade, technology, and national security. And we are launching a positive trade agenda around this that has been unparalleled in the history of our relationship. And we will be addressing what we do with artificial intelligence and and China. And we will be addressing how we create more jobs through secure supply chains, but also more security for our people without becoming protectionists. And we will be addressing, and we are addressing at the same time, issues of getting COVID vaccines to everyone around the world. The EU from day one decided we're not gonna stop any vaccines produced in the EU from being exported. And we affirmatively pushed exports, especially to poorer countries. And today, we have allowed more vaccines produced in Europe to go to other countries than we even have in European arms. And yet, we are the most highly vaccinated region in the world. So, we decided that we're going to be looking at a positive agenda. And this worked now. We didn't go out, we couldn't go out to go on the ground and talk to people before the election to get a feeling of the country. Um, But we did engage with many meetings, and I did many with my 27 other EU ambassadors together uh, with leading politicians uh, from both uh, parties, with leading campaign managers, with others, uh, with pollsters, with everyone. And I have to say, We were pretty good at the end at getting a feel of what might happen, uh, including how tight this would be. So that was effective. What did we lose? And let me close with this, the answer to this. In my view, we lost this intangible. um, We were very good at transactional in some ways. We set a goal. You know, we had to produce reports every week on different things. We did stuff. We were very good at this. Uh, In fact, sometimes people were telling me it was easier for me to write the note back at home without people walking in the office all the time. What we lost was the intangible energy that politics and diplomacy rely on, of people just rubbing shoulders, bumping into a corridor, um, saying, hey, wait, I got an idea now that I saw you. What about this? What about that? How can we work on this? That we lost to a large extent, not to a total extent, right? So we're, we're getting that back rather rapidly now that we're back at 70% uh, force in the, in the embassy. Uh, we're still not 100%. We're taking the safety of our people very seriously. But we also, you know, are not just sitting back and say, okay, everyone is away, everyone can stay. No, I mean, so the, the you know, the place is buzzing again, but we still wear masks around. We still keep social distancing. Um, you know, we did this from moment one. In Europe, and we've advocated this in the United States. Uh, there is, uh, you know, we never understood how this issue could become so politicized—the politicized politicize issue. In Europe, it isn't. Of course, there are people who are vaccine deniers and and uh, mask, uh, but there are very few and and very marginalized from the right to the left in Europe. People said from the beginning, "Look, hey, you know, we got to wear these masks. You know, we, you know, when the vaccines come out, we got to get vaccinated." which is why we got this very, very high percentage of vaccination. So, But we're not going to protect ourselves alone on this unless we protect the rest of the world, guys. Every, every doctor I've spoken to told me, if now we have Delta, we have, we're going to have another Greek letter uh, coming out very soon and another one after that. And they're going to be much faster spreading than Deltas because that's what a variant is, right? It learns how to deal with the existing resistances and then it becomes better at penetrating them. And we'll get all that unless we make sure that, that COVID is not an issue everywhere. So this battle is not open, and the Europeans are still in the front lines in helping the world vaccinate.
0: That's what we have. Two final questions that have been emailed in from um, people watching. One of them is from William and Carbondale who wants to know about the EU-US relationship on climate. And, and maybe this might give you a context to talk about that and, and also your kind of preliminary assessment of what's happening in Glasgow now.
1: Yeah, so it, it, it's a bit too early to say what's happening in Glasgow, but we, we the US and the EU um, worked together uh, for months before Glasgow. We set up after our summit this June, uh, a special, um, you know, uh, task force uh, led by John Kerry on, on your side and Franz Timmermans, the EU chief uh, energy uh, uh, climate chief on our side and our teams to coordinate uh, both on joint outcomes in Glasgow and also in uh, increasing the uh, pressure and incentivization of the rest of the world uh, to move to uh, climate neutrality by 2050, which is the goal that the EU committed first and foremost before anyone else to, and we now put it into law as well. Uh, we also uh, are launching today in Glasgow, Americans and Europeans together, the so-called methane pledge. We have 80 countries around the world. Uh, you know, only three weeks ago, we had only 50 countries. Seven weeks before that, we had only 20, 25 countries. We're getting countries to sign onto a commitment to cut dramatically methane emissions. Methane emissions, when you extract oil, or you do I mean do nat, you know natural gas and all that stuff, methane is coming out. These are very, very, very toxic for the environment, right? It's also perhaps the fastest, cheapest way to reduce quickly your emissions in general if you manage to control methane emissions. So that's why we're focusing on that among many other things. We've gotten 80 countries on board, in, including some of them, you know, the biggest methane emitters today. So um, we're doing this again together. Um, we have been, we, we're looking at technologies, clean technologies of the future together in a way to see whether or not, especially when it comes to um, you know, a- energy production, electricity production, if you, can, if you cannot reach a point to um, work together to get these new, um, new technologies to scale, that's going to be both incredibly important for our economies, but also when it comes to supporting other economies around the world that wish to transition. If you have cheap, effective clean technology, you can actually, you know, um, you know, give them, right? So that's another thing we're doing together. So there's a lot of joint work. Uh, three days ago, I published an article in the Houston Chronicle. Uh, and uh, uh, together with uh, with my colleague, the EU ambassador at the United Nations in New York, and uh, in there, you will see, if you, if you want to go and access it, um, uh, quite a bit of what Americans and Europeans are doing, are doing together. So please do. I understand if you try to access it from your cell phone, you will not be able to do it. There's a paywall. But if you access it from your laptop, you will be able to do it. For the life of me, I don't understand how that works, why that works this way, but it does.
0: Sounds good. Well, final question from Clint from Belleville. And it's, it's, it's a fun question. He says, with the many difficulties in the world and in your career specifically, what are some of the bright spots in your life that make all your work worthwhile? What vision gives you hope and strength to grit your teeth and bear it through adversity? Oh, heck,
1: that's a tough one, but I'll answer it very quickly as follows. Oh, uh, let me think. It's a tough one. Okay, I'll tell you two, thi- I'll tell you two things. That apply to me, may not apply to you, right? I've done, as John said, so many different things in my life, and many of them are actually very different from each other. They're almost different careers. I've had like four or five different careers. I never, ever, ever planned for any one of them. What I did instead is every time I was in something, I tried to do it extremely well, as well as I could. Many people say ambition. You need to be ambitious. Yeah, you know what? That could be a good thing. It could be a really bad thing as well. I mean, I know ambitious people who know what they want to become, but they don't particularly care how they get there. What they do in the meantime, they focus more on getting the right people in a particular job to help them climb a ladder to something else than actually doing the job right when they have it. And maybe hope that because of that uh, product, they will move on to to something else. They will step on dead bodies to get to where they want to. I've seen ambition like that and I don't like it. And I've seen ambition like that in politics and it's the worst kind of ambition. If you see a politician like that, you can be guaranteed they're going to be terrible at their job. They will not do well. They will not actually do well for their people in the district. They will do that well for themselves. So I never planned, but I did my job well. And that always in the end opened opportunities I hadn't planned for, I hadn't expected. Eventually, maybe close to the end of a job, I saw them coming and I would say, hey, that's interesting. Could I do it? And someone would say, yeah, sure, you can. But that was the end part of a process, not the beginning. So my advice to you is try to do what you do well. Some things you will do in life you may actually love. Other things you will not like that much. Even those you don't like that much Find a way to do them well. Find a find, find good thing in them. There's always something in them that reflects who you are. Okay, and that's the second thing. Who are you? If you ask anyone what they do, most people can tell you what they do. I'm, a, I'm the EU ambassador of the United States. If you ask them how you do it, how do you do it? Fewer people will be able to answer. It's a smaller circle. Right. Well, I don't know. I, you know, some people say, I don't know. Why do I do it? I'm a, doc- I'm a doctor. I don't know. I just, I, I do. But I uh, may, may tell you, well, you know, I do it by, you know, doing research because I think that research is very important in achieving, finding the new cure for something, uh, you know, and, and, and blah, blah, blah. Or, you know, I, I do it myself by getting 27 member states together whenever we can, because I feel that this is my family, you know, and all the stuff and all that. Okay. And then the key question, though, is not what you do and how you do it, but it's why. And if you ask someone, why do you do it? Boy, does that circle get smaller. But when I talk to people, what I care to understand is their why. Not their what and not their how. Of course, I care about the what and the how. If you're very successful in something, I care about. But what will make a difference to me when I meet someone is if I understand what drives you, what is your why? It could be a very personal thing. It could be an idealistic thing. It could be a personal uh, story. It could be anything. It could be a rational reason. Tell me your why. So I've always, always made sure in my life, in anything that I did, that I try to take some time back from the madness and sit and think to myself, why am I doing this now? And when I found peace with myself with an answer, then I could do whatever I did much better. So I don't know if that's of any help, but these are my two answers to, 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 to the question, John.
0: Great. Well, Ambassador, it's been really delightful to talk to you. It's been you know, a wide-ranging, interesting conversation. And I would like to just say is you know, when COVID eases, we would love to coax you to, uh, to Illinois. I mean, it's the heartland. And um, you know, uh, you can make a nice stop in Chicago and St. Louis and Carvedale. And i also tell you, there's a small town outside of Springfield, our state capital called Athens, uh, spelled A-T-H-E-N-S, <laughs> A-T-H-E-N-S, that we could get a wonderful photo op with you there. So if, uh, if there's a way we could coax you to Illinois when time and circumstance permit, we would love to to invite you to meet with students okay. in the community <laughs> here.
1: Tell nothing about Athens Illinois. Um, the, uh, the mother of, uh, well, the wife of, of, of Andreas Papandreou, the, the prime minister of Greece in the 80s, and mother of George Papandreou, the prime minister of Greece in 2009, 2011, probably, uh, was born in Athens, Illinois. So, so, um, but I haven't been. I haven't been, so I, I'd be more than happy to, uh, more than happy to do that visit uh, with you. It, it was such a pleasure uh, for me to be with you, John, and uh, you know, specifically and in particular, Warm congratulations uh, for your leadership of the, of the Paul Simon Center. I mean, it's 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 a place that we here at the EU Embassy not just know about but follow very closely. I, I, always wish to be supportive. Uh, thank you to uh, to everyone, uh, students and others, who suffered us for a whole hour. I hope you enjoyed it in the end. I mean, I hope it wasn't all that much suffering. But sometimes talking about Europe, I mean, even I get bored. But I mean, <laughs> so. Uh, and uh, and I absolutely look forward to the next opportunity, including uh, physical if that's what it is.
0: Thank you for listening to Simon Cast, the official podcast of the Paul Simon Public Policy Institute at Southern Illinois University. Simon Cass is produced in collaboration with WSIU Public Radio. You can find Simon Cass wherever you listen to podcasts, including NPR One, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and more. Please subscribe to new episodes as soon as they're posted and tell your friends about our show. For more information, visit paulsimoninstitute.org. Thank you for listening and thank you for keeping the legacy of Paul Simon alive and well.